This is Unorthodox, and I am one of your hosts, Stephanie Butnick. This week, we are bringing you a special live show that we recorded at the San Francisco JCC with guest host Barry Weiss. Before she was a New York Times opinion editor and writer and the author of How to Fight Anti-Semitism, Barry Weiss was our colleague at Tablet. We knew her when. In celebration of both of our books, we made a special live show that's sort of a survival guide for Jews in 2019. A look at anti-Semitism today and what Jews and their friends need to know about it. Don't worry, we still had fun too. Joining us later on in the show is New Yorker writer Andrew Morantz, author of the new book Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Thanks to Stephanie Singer and everyone at the SFJCC for making this event possible. And now, the live show. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co-hosts, Tablet Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. And Tablet Senior Writer Leah Leibovitz. Shalom to you. And a special co-host tonight, Barry Weiss, New York Times opinion editor and writer and author of the new book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Shalom. So, shalom. <laughs> and Alila Tov, to Erev Tov to you. We'll also be talking to New Yorker writer Andrew Morantz, who is author of the forthcoming book, Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. Uh, you can get Barry's book and also our new book, The Newish Jewish Encyclopedia, after the show, and we'll be signing books as well, and we will be reminding you to pre-order Andrew's book. Here I should apologize and say that having someone up to talk about anti-Semitism and someone else to talk about a book that deals heavily with trolling is not the best way to start a night happily. Um, <laughs> we hope that tonight will be fruitful and leave you with, with action items. Are there going to be action items? Yes. So many. So many action items. So many so actions. Many. We're actually going to solve anti-Semitism in this room tonight. Tonight. <laughs> One night only. One night only. Before we get to the news of the Jews, the fulcrum of tonight, Barry Weiss, strong day today? Strong day. I had a big night last night. I was on stage with the Mad Men creator, Matthew Weiner, in L.A., and... I always anticipate hecklers at events and like practice what I would do in the case of hecklers, but I don't really usually anticipate octogenarian hecklers, which is what we got at the Skirball Center. And it was really amazing. Like, it was hilarious. Were they like, it's too warm in here? Well, then they started, they literally, to try and cut them off, started playing Benny Goodman. <laughs> and it was like, of course. Just to get course. him in the mood. It was just perfect. I it thought you were going to say Benny Hill, which would have been really no, amazing. It was That's just, it was, it was amazing. I wonder what the anti-Heckler music is here. We're, let's, God willing, we won't find out. Liel, news of the Jews. We're going to Yeah, I, I have no personal life whatsoever. I'm not allowed to until they actually come up with a government in Israel. Which, <laughs> this may come as a shock to you, we still ain't got one. But <laughs> the amazing thing about Israel is they have no government, but... Who was at the Western Wall just yesterday or the day before? Uh, my own personal candidate for prime minister, Demi Lovato. Uh, I, I think that if it doesn't work with Gantz and Netanyahu, President Rivlin, just say like, Demi, you know, you're with it. Just come take a stab at it. No, but, and she met with the blind chorus. Like she's really making all the stops. She's super into it. But, but she's on the Amari had, Stoudemire tour of yeah, Israel, exactly. right? The, but you know who had an even better time in Israel? Uh, so my friends, a couple of days ago, started sending these crazy photos on Facebook because a bunch of them had gone to the kind of like really janky cineplex to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the new Quentin Tarantino movie. Loved it. And who walks into the janky cineplex like right off the gas station in Tel Aviv by the Supersal but Quentin ah. Tarantino? No. So here's the thing. Is it cool to kind of go see your own movie by yourself in a foreign country? Okay, did weird? he pay for a ticket? Of course he paid for a ticket. He's not a <laughs> savage. Because this is because wow. his wife, his girlfriend lives his, his wife is Israeli. in Israel. Uh, he's I didn't married, know that. He's married to Israeli rock royalty. His father-in-law is Tzvi Kapik, who is sort of the kiss. He's like the Paul Stanley of Israel, which is saying so much. <laughs> uh, and he's like this great uh, musician. And, and, you know, Quentin just had a night off. And it's like, I'm going to see my own movie. Pay 30 Do shekels. Do they still have intermission at movies in Israel for the smoke break? And the funny thing is that because once upon a time, French used to be a f a official language. In Hollywood? A s in Hollywood. A slide comes uh, halfway through the movie and says, Entracht. It's like, what, what the fuck is this? Like, are we in <laughs> Europe? Like, we're in Tel Aviv. <laughs> Speaking of Paul Stanley, did you see the picture of Paul Stanley backstage? 
no joke. So they have pictures of everyone who's ever come to do arts and letters programming at the JCC of San Francisco. And they have them arranged in these sort of like palettes of, you know, five in a row, all layered over each other. Thomas and Friedman, and it's David Paul, Remnick. It's Paul Stanley from KISS, Thomas Friedman from the New York Times, uh, Angelique Kijo. They're making a super group. Right, that's and, a band I'd, I'd watch. And, and David Remnick from The New Yorker, which is such an odd... <laughs> He's on base. An odd, odd My band. favorite was the poster, by the way, with, with Garrison Keillor. It was like David Mamet. It was like seven Jews and, and one who's really not. And one who's really not. So we're really hoping to make it onto a poster after this. So we're, I don't know how well it's going so far, but like, you know, maybe by the end we'll make it on. So Any other news? A little more, a little more news of the Jews. Uh, I'm just gonna, just gonna run through this just to get us situated in uh, what it's like to be Jewish in the world in 2019. The Women's March did announce, uh, it's coming up on a week ago now, that it is cutting ties with three original board members accused of anti-Semitism. They were... <laughs> If I'm not mistaken, they then replaced one of them with someone else who then got pushed off for anti-Semitism. Um, they tried. They tried. But hey. And one could, of them has moved on to being a surrogate for Bernie Sanders. One of the people who was pushed off. Correct. Right. So well, they'll all find good work somewhere, right? <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's, always, there's, there's always, it's a springboard, you know, women's march board, just, you know. Um, could be worse, could be in Belgium. Now, some of you hear our show or, or just pay attention to world news of the Jews know that there was a little kerfuffle over a Belgian university that posted um, a sort of YouTube video sign language dictionary. Uh, how many of you saw this? Raise your hands if you know where I'm going with this. Okay, so let the other, half of, you, the other half of you grab onto your seats. So in, <laughs> in at least one version of Belgian sign language, the sign for Jew is doing this with your nose, like big nose. Um, and now their argument, which is, which I will actually sp spend a moment thinking about uh, in a few days when I have some time, is that the dictionary is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. So if in fact some deaf Belgians use that sign, it's their job to describe the sign. And they've um, gone on sort of the Flemish Sign Language Center has offered, a, they put up a statement uh, following protests um, about the gesture. And um, they said, well, this is, you know, this is one version of it. Uh, and the dictionary is made up of videos. It's hosted on a website belonging to the University of Ghent, which is where Liel is studying for his next PhD, if I'm not mistaken. In their defense, he originally had circumcision. That's <laughs> right. the sign. It just didn't well, fly. And something we learned on our show last week was that we talked to uh, a sign language interpreter, and she said that payas is a common word. And in American sign language, payas also means Williamsburg. So if you are going, if you're sending right. someone to Brooklyn, you like literally, side right. curls. yeah, side, side curls. curls. So check out the trust fund babies in. That's right. <laughs> and in fact, so many, so some more culturally sensitive sign languages have replaced the hook nose with the, the beard, which is, you know, it's like, okay, I sort of get what I you're saying. I feel like that might make more sense for Williamsburg. So it's like sort Ooh. of a toss up. So it's like bearded hipster, hipster in, Williams, yeah. in, 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 in Williamsburg. Um, Nobody came up with just money. Just <laughs> <laughs> why, why go far? Um, right, so easy. They should have just, they passed by the obvious one. And finally, fi <laughs> well, not finally, but we're going to stop here and, and talk to an expert on these things. Um, it turns out that... So uplifting. It, it, <laughs> we're going to send what them off on What do you mean? It's news of the this. <laughs> it turns out that some, some leading anti-Semites are using um, the, uh, some popular chat app to compile just a list of Jewish people just like for right-wingers to access in case they're wondering who who's, to shoot? who's Jewish out there, who to shoot. And all I want to know is like, do you think we made the list, guys? <laughs> like, we know you're on the list. Am I? No, I don't know, but you must be, right? I mean, like, I mean, what good I, would a list of... I, I guarantee you that I'm on the list. Yeah, right. But I feel like we, we, might, we might not Thank have made it. Thank you so much. Thank you. I want to say you've really made it. I'm kind of famous on Reddit. <laughs> Is, is there also a rank list? Can you like upvote and downvote people on the list? How does that work? Well, is it like the, you know the thing that's like constantly circulated of everyone who works at CNN with a Jewish star on their face? Ooh, Have I didn't know. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. See, what I think they should do is they should take this list and cross it with a list your uncle sends you of all the Jews who won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> It'll just be really easy to have one source. All I know is if I find out that the hosts of some other Jewish podcast are on that list and we're not, there's oh, going to be hell to pay There'll be hell somewhere. to pay. There will be. Then it'll be anti-Semitism. That'll be anti-Semitism, right? I just think it's really important to like keep focusing on this imp the important stuff, you know? Absol absolutely, absolutely. Which, which brings we us... We need to ask Andrew about this, though. Yes. Is it a 4chan list or a Reddit list? or No, it's too bad. It? 4chan like, wouldn't host it. It was, too, that, it was too far for them. We'll, we'll, okay, we're going to ask. Was, we'll get is, an expert on. It wasn't even on 8chan. It was on 12chan. <laughs> I don't understand the chance. I really or 36chan because it's double high. Double. <laughs> that is 
auspicious. Which brings us to the topic of the night. Nobody has thought more about anti-Semitism in the last <laughs> 18 months or so than Barry, Lila, Margareta, No, I have no middle Weiss. name. No middle name. No middle name? No. They your gave parents, up after Barry. Your parents just like, we've aced the hole with Barry? I think they felt, yeah, all, I have three sisters and they all have middle names. I do not have a middle you name. You told me this story once of where Barry comes from and the world wants to know. Well, the world can now know that I have two great grandmothers who were both named Bertha. My parents did not want to curse me with that name, although I think Bertie is kind of a cute name. So, and they knew, they knew this actress who they thought was very cool, a local Pittsburgh actress, her name was Barry, and that was it. There's no like special name, she it's not a, James Barry from Peter Pan. She was a leading Pittsburgh she area thespian. Exactly, yes, exactly. she played like, you know, funny girl or whatever. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, help, it's actually quite helpful in my job, or was at earlier stages of it, because everyone thought I was a man the whole time. Because you're always just communicating with people right. Through email. It was like a sexism defeater. It was. Sort of. And yeah. you got and you got the Twitter handle. Barry Weiss, yeah. certified accountant. All right. So, <laughs> no, dentist, dentist. Dentist. Come on. Okay, so your new book, How to Fight Anti-Semitism, just out. It I takes, solved it. You've solved it, right? And you're going to get to the solutions. But first, I um, just to make this night even more cheery, do you want to you, you start in the first few pages by talking about the genesis of it. And do you want to say something about last October 27th? I would say that that was the day that I feel like I woke up from the holiday from history that I had spent most of my life on, and frankly, that I think that most American Jews have spent their life on. There's this wonderful line in Humboldt's Gift where the main character talks about how he came to America to get rest. In other words, as a Jew, you know, Zionism was the sort of trajectory of history and going to Israel where you were still sort of involved fighting in the, the fight. fighting the fight. And America allowed us to assimilate. It allowed us to become just like everyone else. It allowed us incredible success. I mean, we are the luckiest diaspora in all of history. And I still believe that even after Pittsburgh and, and Poway. You know, there were vestiges of the kind of uglier past that I encountered. There were jokes about picking up pennies and hook noses and the money. And I remember very distinctly being in third or fourth grade and being at the corner where I would wait for the school bus to go to my Jewish day school with my younger sister. And the Catholic bus would drive by and scream at us that we were kikes. And I had never heard that word before. And that's how little I had actually encountered anti-Semitism. I actually view that as an incredible thing. But all in all, you know, I had just an incredible upbringing in what I regard as a sort of 21st century shtetl. It's the kind of place where, unlike in larger Jewish communities in places like New York and LA, where it's possible to sort of stay in your political or religious niche. In Pittsburgh, we really all knew each other. But before we get to Pittsburgh, I, I want to get back to that Saturday. You're sure. in Phoenix, right? You're yeah. giving a big talk to a bunch yeah. of machers. I, I was there to speak to a thousand Jews about another topic. And I woke up and I looked at my phone and there was just one line from my youngest sister and it said, there's a shooter at Tree of Life. And my thought immediately went to my dad um, because he sort of floats around to different synagogues on Shabbat morning. Uh, and he's often at one of the services at Tree of Life. And this I, is where you had your bat mitzvah? Yeah, I became a bat mitzvah there in 1997. Uh, the synagogue where I was supposed to become a bat mitzvah right up the street. This is all happening in Squirrel Hill. All, by the way, down the road from Mr. Rogers. I mean, it's literally Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. There had been a fire at my synagogue. And so Tree of Life just sort of graciously stepped in and everyone who was going to become a bar mitzvah that year went to Tree of Life instead. So my sister sent this text and I immediately wrote back, is dad? I didn't even, like, I didn't even finish the question, is dad there? And immediately, uh, thank God, it felt like forever. A few moments later, my mom wrote back and said, no, we're still at home, but we're going to know people there. Um, and it turned out that we knew 11 people were killed. My dad knew six or seven of them quite well. I knew two of them um, pretty well, these two um, intellectually disabled brothers. Cecil and David Rosenthal, who were ushers at the synagogue. They went to high school with my mom. She was always driving them to get groceries and things. And they were kind of like the unofficial mayors of Pittsburgh. Um, I think one of the signs actually of how special and loving our community is, is the fact that they were known by everyone. Like these were not people who were sort of shunted to the side. Um, anyway, I, I was supposed to do, a, I, I rewrote my entire speech. Of all things, Deborah Lipstadt, who is a pretty well-known professor and famously um, was taken to court in the UK by David Irving, who's a Holocaust denier, and won the case. There's a wonderful movie about her case called Denial, where Rachel Weisz plays Deborah Lipstadt. 
I had never met her in real life. We'd corresponded for years and she happened to be at this conference. And so I had dinner with sort of like the, one of my heroes and really one of the world leaders on this topic. And she sort of helped me recraft what my speech was gonna be the next day. I was supposed to fly to Israel that Sunday um, on a reporting trip. I ended up pushing it off and I went home instead to my community where I grew up um, to sort of bear witness to what happened. And one of the amazing things was that you guys came too. Tablet, I think, did one of the most special versions of the podcast that you've ever done, just really bearing witness to what had happened and talking to people from all parts of the community. So having you guys there was, was really special and really, really meaningful. Thank you. And you were already into ideas for another book, which I gather you set aside to write this one. I did. What was the book you then felt you had to write? You know, I'm supposed to write a, a book about the culture war, which I'll still do. Just keeping it light. Keeping it light. Keeping it light. Just, Just really trying to make my internet presence yeah. less controversial. Yeah. Um, I just found myself drawn back and back and back to this topic. It's not like I was a naif. I'm a news junkie, obviously. I'm someone who knows a lot about Jewish history. My dad's a conservative, my mom's a liberal. They've canceled out each other's votes for forever. We debate politics constantly in my house. But I just thought that anti-Semitism was really something that happened to Jews in other places. I thought we were sort of uniquely inoculated. I completely agree. I mean, this was my, one of my weird thoughts. I mean, we. Stephanie and I and a bunch of others got in the car and drove down immediately. And, and one of the things that kept going through my mind is coming from Israel, there's, there's an emotional sort of kind of like order of response. Like, you know exactly what you're going to do when you hear something like this is happening. Yeah. But what do you do when it happens in Pittsburgh? Well, it was one of the things I remember so clearly, and I remember it just shocking me, is I was so used to during the second intifada texting my friends in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, but especially Jerusalem saying, are you safe, are you okay? And all of a sudden I was getting dozens of text messages from them to me. So you set out to write this book, yeah. which, is, which is, begins with this vast and sweeping and very compelling description of the landscape of anti-Semitism. Lead us to this dark, dark land. Okay, so I, the book is split up into what I sort of think of as a three-headed dragon. I had written a column about the three-headed dragon fought by European Jews. One head of the dragon is the far left, um, one head is the far right, and one is radical Islam, and that's sort of how I decided to structure the book. You know, the question of left-wing, right-wing, what anti-Semitism is, it's not political. It is a virus that is carried in the DNA of civilization. We're never gonna get rid of it, spoiler alert, entirely. Get all of your money back now. What, <laughs> what I think the best case is, and one of the reasons that I think it's been such an incredible two generations or so in America is because America itself has thrived. There's been a sense of unity. There's been a sort of, generally speaking, we're living in a healthy liberal democracy. I'm not talking about the past two years. I mean, compared to Israel, sure, I'm, I'm gonna yes. get there. Um, you have a government, that's a beginning. Anti-Semitism thrives, like, like in your virus, you know, Liel, we have hundreds or thousands of viruses inside of us every day, but as long as we are healthy, they don't show themselves. When our immune system is weakened, as the immune system of this country, certainly of England and France, and I could go down the list, are as well, then anti-Semitism starts to show itself. So what is the virus? Could you sort of break it down to yeah. its single form? So what anti-Semitism is fundamentally is a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy theory that says there is a secret hand controlling the world, and that secret hand is the Jew. And that is why it morphs in very, very slippery ways. So that's why under communism, the Jews are the arch capitalists because that is what that society loathes the most. It is why under Nazism, the Jews are the race contaminators. It is why under white supremacy, the Jews are the greatest trick the devil ever played because at least the majority of us in America, I think 12 to 15% of American Jews identify as Jews of color. The rest are of Ashkenazi descent, we pass as white. And so white supremacists say, we are the worst in fact, because we appear to be white. But in fact, we are the secret, we are the betrayers of the white race because we are slavishly loyal to the black people and the brown people and the Muslims and the immigrants, which is exactly, of course, what the white supremacist who walked into Pittsburgh believed. Remember, the reason he chose Tree of Life was that the week before, Tree of Life had sponsored, it was part of a national campaign of refugee Shabbat. 
and elevating the, the fundamental Jewish value of welcoming the stranger because we know what it was to be a stranger because we were strangers in the land of Egypt. And he had actually singled out a very, very wonderful, and here's a plug, this incredible Jewish organization called Hayas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, which was founded in the 1880s to help the Jews who were fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe acclimate and assimilate to life in America, and today does the work of helping Jews around the world, but also plenty of non-Jews. And the reason that he wanted to single out the Jews and this specific synagogue was because of their affiliation with Hyas and the idea that the Jews were facilitating the sullying of white Christian America by bringing in these people. So given the perniciousness of this virus, like what can we do? Yeah, let me add the one thing because I think it's especially important to talk about in a city like San Francisco, which is what it looks like on the far left. Yeah, please. So it's sort of a mirror image of what you see on the far right. What anti-Semitism of the far left does is that it doesn't simply say the Jews can pass as white, which of course we can, and we benefit from that in all sorts of ways. It actively turns the Jews into the handmaidens of white supremacy by stripping us of our ability to claim victimhood. And the way that it does this, and we can debate you know, what the intentions of intersectionality were when that idea was first coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, I think it's a really useful way of framing um, the way that give, give a quick description to those of us who are not gender studies. Sure, so, <laughs> so tell us how you Leah, really come feel. On. We, we, all know you were an Oberlin gender studies major, like half the people in this no, I still am. He's I at the university. He's the University of Ghent. That's where he's getting his PhD in gender studies. So what intersectionality insists on is the idea that, so it's based on this case where black women were getting systemically denied jobs at General Electric because they were too black for one job and too female for the other. And what Kimberly Crenshaw rightly pointed out is they sort of slipped through the cracks because there was no way to capture which, which part of them was the one that was being discriminated against? Because one, in one sense, it was the job as secretaries for which you know, only white women could have it, and then the other was a job sort of on the line at General Electric in the plant, and they weren't men, and it was only a job for men. So again, useful way of looking at the world. What it actually looks like in practice, in my experience and in the experience, I would say, of many people, um, is that it basically inverts the caste system that we have here to, until five minutes ago, been living under. The old caste system, right, is the Don Drapers of the world, as I said last night with the Mad Men guy, they're at the top of the food chain. People like black women or people that are transgender or queer or Muslims, they're at the very bottom. What intersectionality does, and with good intentions in mind, is it flips that caste system. It says that the more oppressions you have, the more claim to victimhood, the higher you are. And the people at the very bottom now are the Don Drapers of the world, but just above them on the, rung of the bottom rung of the ladder are the Jews, because we can pass as white, because we're privileged, because we've achieved incredible success in this country. And I think one of the problems of that framework is that it shocks people then when they hear that in 2018 in New York City, which has the highest Jewish population of any city in the world, there were four times as many hate crimes against Jews than against blacks. Since 1995, according to the FBI, every single year, the majority of hate crimes committed against Jews. It blinds people to any prejudice against us that isn't carried out by white supremacists. When white supremacists attack us, there's incredible consensus about it because they're so blunt and evil in their aims. Like the killer in Pittsburgh who walked into that synagogue and said, all Jews must die. No one's debating whether or not that's anti-Semitism. But it, when it comes from the far left, it often cloaks itself in the language, like much like communism did, of social justice, of equality, of anti-racism, of all of these things that are a siren song, frankly, to Jewish ears. 75% of Jews vote Democrat, and we've rightly seen ourselves at the forefront of many progressive movements. So what happens when anti-Semites are sort of in our own living room rather than across the street? So then what do you say to people who say like, well, then there are the people shooting at us, right? And then what you're describing doesn't actually sound so dangerous. I mean, yeah. how do you respond to the fact that one side of this is horrifying and the other is this sort of like gray area yeah. social change moment. Yeah, so I wanna be extremely clear because I get this question a lot. There's no doubt in my mind that the most physically threatening 
anti-Semitism right now in America comes from white supremacists. God forbid someone's gonna walk into a synagogue or a JCC and hurt us, nine times out of 10 right now, that person's gonna be contributing to that Reddit list that you mentioned earlier. That you wanna be on. Exactly. <laughs> um, but look, the anti-Semitism of the far left can be very, very deadening as well in a different way. And I think because of sort of Hitler's long shadow and the fact that so many of us are connected through our own families to the Holocaust and what happened within living memory, that kind of anti-Semitism feels very familiar to us and very potent. But there's also the anti-Semitism of the Soviet Union, which forced the Jews to flush thousands of years of Jewish civilization down the toilet in order to survive in their bodies. It sort of forced them to become zombie-like. There's a famous phrase from this Yiddish writer, Peretz Markish, um, that I have in my book that just really stuck with me, which is, you know, Hitler tried to kill us physically, Stalin tried to kill us spiritually. And so I think of it- And then tried to kill them physically. Exactly, <laughs> no, so that's what I was gonna right? get to. Yeah. Peretz Markish famously um, was part of, Stalin had this thing called the Anti-Fascist Committee and some of the biggest celebrities, Jewish celebrities at the time, Yiddish writers of the stage and directors, and Peretz Markish was a poet. He was participating in this basically window dressing for Stalin. And he, like many others, deluded himself into thinking, you know, if only I can show that I'm a true believer to the cause, I will be protected. Peretz Markish is ultimately killed on what's called the Night of the Dead Poets. Nathan Englander has a, has a play about it called The 27th Man, which I really recommend, and he's shot dead along with all of the other surviving members of the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee. So we know where that ends. One of the kind of anti-Semitism seeks dead Jews immediately. The other asks us to sort of participate in our own destruction. In the Soviet Union, you know, the biggest anathema to the communist regime was religious practice. And so it forced the Jews to abandon all religious practice. Today, on the far left, what it forces the Jews to abandon is any connection with Jewish power is the way I would put it. Or particularity. It. So let, let, let's get now to the point of actually taking action. Yes. Let's, let's start with, uh, with our Gentile friends, of which we may have one, one or two. Yeah, yeah. Fine if you're here, it's all good. I love the person waving <laughs> their hands. Like, yay, Welcome. Gentiles. <laughs> what could allies do? Let's start there and then we'll get to the Jews. So I think that there are two um, politicians that sort of show the way both positively and negatively that I would point out. I'll start with the negative, which is our great mayor, Bill de Blasio, New York City mayor. Wait, he's going to be president soon. Oh, so you yeah, have to exactly, worry about it. exactly. He's not, don't, he's not going to be your mayor for long. It's the person who got literally one, one vote in this president, like one, a single person. So voted Bill in this de Blasio, campaign. if I were mayor of New York City right now and I wanted to make a stand against anti Semitism, I would go to Crown Heights, where there has been sort of a slow unfolding, rolling, low-level pogrom against the ultra-Orthodox Jews that live there. In the last week of August, there were three violent assaults. You're surprised because this doesn't even make the news. And the reason for it is that the people carrying it out are not obvious villains. They're not white supremacists. They're neighbors. They're young black men. And what happens when people who are themselves subject to systemic discrimination and oppression also are victimizers? It's much more complicated. So if I were Bill de Blasio, I would be going to Crown Heights and leading a keep a walk through the neighborhood. Of course, he's doing none of that. But I would say the person who is leading the charge in the right direction is Sadi Khan, the Muslim mayor of London who is taking an unbelievable stand against the anti-Semitism that's an epidemic inside the Labor Party. He did this by showing up this week to the Jewish Labor Party conference and saying that he's standing in solidarity with our Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, so I think that is a very, very important step, showing up in solidarity. Pittsburgh was an unbelievable example in this regard. The surrounding Pittsburgh community came forward to stand with the Jews in a way that was sort of a radical departure from history, right? Because when pogroms used to happen to Jews in Europe, the surrounding community would abet in the attack or they would stand by and watch. What happened in Pittsburgh was the opposite. People stood up and, and said very clearly that an attack on the Jews is an attack on us. I will never forget this. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, on the front page, printed in Hebrew script the Aramaic words of the mourner's Kaddish, you know, the Yit Kadal V'yit Kadash. That was an amazing departure from history and one that just 
should not be overlooked. What can Jews do? What should we be doing as Jews to do something other than feel helpless? I think that this moment is obviously precarious and raw and scary, but it's also an amazing opportunity because when you are attacked for who you are, two things happen in my experience. One is that you want to disappear. When you get bullied for a part of your identity, part of you can just want to hide away. And I understand when there are lots of Jews who feel that impulse right now, who want to save their real identity for the privacy of their own home. And I, I think we see that in all sorts of ways. But I think that the more productive thing, and certainly what Jewish history shows, is that when we use the opportunity of a moment like this to dig in to the deep wellsprings of our civilization. Walker Percy has this amazing line where he talks about the fact that, you know, why do we never talk about the fact that the Jews are the only ancient civilization that still walks the face of the earth? There's no one here from the Roman Empire. There are no Hittites, you know, the Hittites or the Moabites, some of the most His line power- is like, how come you never bump into a Hittite? Exactly, yeah. how come you never bump into a Hittite in New York City? Right. But then you have to think about why that is. And the reason that we've survived this long isn't because we simply were anti-anti-Semites. That's not a way to live in the world. And that, that to me is death. Like, you know, that is letting our enemies and our haters define who we are. I think the, most, the best thing Jews can do in this moment is lean into our Jewishness and our Judaism. Take Hebrew classes, watch Jewish movies, and you know, binge Diesel on Netflix, it's excellent. Learn more about who we are as a people and why we have survived this long. And we've brought to the world some ideas that didn't just change the course of Jewish history, but changed the course of human history. And I know that sounds maybe chauvinistic to say, but it's just true. You know, we brought the world the idea of one God, the idea of Shabbat, which is the weekend, the idea of, <laughs> the idea of human freedom and that no people should be slaves. That's who we are. And I think if, if the best possible thing that can come from this moment is for us to decide, you know, what we want our next chapter to be. And I'm just, I feel really, really, really hopeful in that regard. I do. You know, one of the best parts about the, what has happened since October is that I've been traveling to Jewish communities and cities all over the country. And I know millennials and, you know, the generation younger than us get a very bad rap, but I find it, them to be unbelievably inspiring. And renewing Jewish civilization in ways that, you know, our ancestors couldn't have even imagined. I'm going to applaud that, actually. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Char Bar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. I want to bring Andrew up. Yes. Andrew Morantz, come on up. <laughs> All right. Keeping up the drumbeat of some of the best reporters about the sewer of hate that the world has become. <laughs> Yay. Andrew well, Morantz. Nice. All right. Thank you. By the way, I love that we have a couch. We're like, we're like the anti-Ellen. We bring people to sit on the couch and then make them talk about the most depressing <laughs> things. It was our choice. And I mean. no dancing. We did Wait, write yeah. this book. This was actually Merv Griffin's sofa. Okay, introduce him. Okay, Andrew Morantz is a staff writer at The New Yorker. His first book is Antisocial, Online Extremists, Techno-Utopians, and the Hijacking of the American Conversation. It's about social media and the mainstreaming of fringe politics, something you might want to read about. I am reading it. I'm loving it. It's very long. I'm not It will be published in October, and we're so happy to have Andrew as our other Jew of the week. So, Andrew, since Antisocial was going to be the title of my autobiography, <laughs> and, and you kind of stole it from me. Liel actually once sent me a note very early in our friendship where we were talking about some sort of ideological difference or whatever, and I said, so like, how do you think it's going to end for me and you? And he said, well, you'll end with like, your five children and lots of grandchildren around the hearth for Passover, and I will end up muttering about communism to the pigeons in Central Park. <laughs> that's, that's already come to pass. And I feel like actually we're both 80% but, of the way there. Dream but it, dream I will it. be armed and those pigeons will be afraid of me. <laughs> so Andrew, yeah. I, I want to I start experientially. Yeah. You spent a lot of time in the absolute worst corners of the known world. Mm-hmm. Take us to your heart of darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I did, and I actually, as the kind of honorary Gentile of the week, I didn't approach it as being about anti-Semitism at all. I, I was interested in what the internet was doing to us, to our politics, to our culture, to our society. I didn't expect to write a book about hate speech or definitely not about anti-Semitism. I thought that it would be kind of about newer, more novel, interesting forms of weirdness, and there was some of that there too, but I was shocked at the degree to which the Jews were at the center of it, and that, that my identity as being Jewish would matter to the reporting at all. So what I started off originally doing was just sort of seeing, okay, there's this notion that every election has a kind of m- media kind of driving the conversation, that 2012 was the BuzzFeed election, 20, 2008 was the, remember the note, the newsletter that the ABC put out mm-hmm. that was supposed to be the note election? This is like hmm. the way people get their information about who they're going to vote for, because there's no guarantee that people sit and wait for their hometown paper to arrive on their doorstep and say, who did my paper endorse? Well, there aren't those papers anymore. Right, exactly. So, you know, there's this very old-fashioned notion of there's this book, The Party Decides, that these political scientists put out that say, well, there's this thing called political parties, and they always have a lot of influence over who the nominee will be, because there's this thing called the invisible primary that's based on endorsements and, and donors and, and the media but they don't really think about what the media means. They just think it means time and Newsweek. So I was like, okay, there's a new invisible primary happening and it's happening on the internet. So I should go see what's going on on the internet. And it turns out it's really scary. (laughs) I didn't, I, and and it wasn't, and it wasn't only going to 4chan and 8chan and Chan and and Telegram. The thing that, the thing you're, the thing you're talking about is on Telegram, which is a Russian app that was supposed to be for end-to-end encrypted messaging. And now that's where a lot of the hate groups are going. Good but to you know. met some of them in real life. Yes, I in did. In the book. So Will I, you give us one story? Well, so I, when I was going down this political rabbit hole, I ended up coming to Nazis pretty quickly, which worried me. And, um, so when, when was I, this? This is pre-2016. Yeah. And then post, it got really ramped up. So I, I start the book with the, this inauguration party that they had called the Deplorable. Get it? That, um, so I was there with like, and some of it was very, you know, fine, like women wearing adorable, deplorable sashes that they want to take pictures with me. And I was like, okay, 
I've met Trump supporters before, this isn't really that scary. But then there were times when, as I got deeper and deeper into it, and, and post-Charlottesville, the vibe changed a lot. Post-Charlottesville, this stuff really got energized and the anti-Semitism, there's a dividing line between what, what they call the alt-light and the alt-right, and the dividing line is the JQ, they call it, which is the Jewish question. Just weird, because we call our listeners the J-Crew, uh, and I feel a like- A little too close, yeah. yeah. So we close. probably should yeah. them. And this is where, you know, the question of, is this kind of a new form of, frivolous trolling or is this drawing on some really old stuff? Like all of a sudden it ain't funny anymore. Yes, yeah. and now it's like, okay, the Jewish question is a phrase that has been thrown around for a long time. Was, the Nazis were really fond of it. Um, you know, they use like very specific German phrases that you would only know if you were reading certain books. So it becomes clear very quickly. And the thing that they brag about, right, is their Judar because the reason that they're putting Jewish stars on CNN reporters, it's not just I mean, whatever, it's a lot of things, but what, one of the things they're trying to do is called naming the Jew. They want people to know how many of them are out there because they, so they can't pass so that they can come into the light. I heard Richard Spencer on a podcast once talking about, like, it's so amazing, people don't even know. Oh, by the way, you know who else doesn't have a middle name? Is Elena Kagan. And she, uh, but, but the reason... Why did you just go there? Because you don't have a middle name either. I know. But, but because why, why they were saying how oh, so many people don't even know that our Supreme Court is overtaken with Jews. They can't believe that like normies don't know this. So they, <laughs> they feel that once normal right. white people are become apprised of this fact, they'll all rise up in the streets and be like, oh, we've been overtaken by Jews. By Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes, exactly. <laughs> like that one you should really know. So all of which <laughs> is leading up to- is Jewish all to the barricades. So, but the whole idea, right, is that they are supposed to be our leaders of Judar to show the masses where all the Jews are. But I kept interacting with them and they didn't know I was a Jew. And I was like, guys, this is your whole job. <laughs> what is going on? Like, I'm not hiding anything. I've written for Tablet Magazine. I've written for Hebe Magazine. I'm not like, Google me. I, or just like, look, look, at, look at my face. Where is your Judar? And they're like, well, you have red hair, so like, we really couldn't tell. I'm like, come on, what? man. So wait, Get would your you, shit together. Would so you how be, did yeah, would you say so, that you're Jewish? Well, there was one guy who's kind of the um, head propagandist of the movement. Altright.com called him our leading philosopher. He's a big deal. Um, I don't want to brag, but I spent a lot of time with him. And he, um, <laughs> he so, but, and we, we talked a lot. He gave me uh, this book by Kevin McDonald, who's a sort of disgraced professor, yeah. which is kind of the new protocols of the elders of Zion. It's like a very, it's very dense. It has a lot of, you know, a lot of charts and graphs. Back and matter. Yeah. It really does. No, yeah. but uh, does if it you come with calipers? It, <laughs> if you don't, if you, but the thing is, this is partly, this is a tangent, but this is partly how they get you because if you, don't know how to read texts and you just see a really thick book with lots of footnotes yeah. and stuff and it looks like oh this guy's a professor he must know what he's talking about like a lot of people get radicalized by that so the guy tells me oh you should really buy that book and read it and then it, as he's giving me the book recommendation this is after we've been talking for hours and hours and hours he goes wait you're not a jew are you and i'm like yeah, buddy. Uh, and he's like, but not like full. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. You're like, I'm 100% Ashkenazi yeah. 23 in me. You're like There's this close to dropping trousers with him, basically. <laughs> like, you were like, we can settle this right now. But would it have mattered in his mind if you weren't full? Uh, I like, think that there would have been some hope. I mean, the other wrinkle for this guy is that he married a half Jewish woman. Right, they're all, okay. Oh, this is the Daily Showa guy. Yeah, his podcast is called The Daily Showa. So I was he, like, wait, but, but you're not like lactose intolerant, right? They know, I could, I mean. But yeah. that's partly because they're obsessed with Jews, right? Like, that's the thing. I once did a piece on a couple, like, yeah. major Holocaust deniers, and one of them had a sister who'd converted to Judaism, and one of them had an ex-wife who was Jewish. Like, yeah. they can't get enough of us. I was shocked at the degree to which, well, I mean, one thing is that the, a lot of the people, a majority of the people both on both sides of the JQ that I spent time with were not from they were not growing up in the movement or even growing up one step away from the movement. Most of them grew up in perfectly anodyne sort of liberal pluralist America. And a lot of the impetus came from wanting to be as contrarian as possible and kind of find their way. So I chart in the book how people go step by step. It's not like they, you know, see a swastika on TV and it just lures them in and they're just through a portal. Like it's an intellectual, I mean, intellectual in quotes, but it is an intellectual process. There are steps that, they call it the libertarian to alt-right pipeline, and they're very serious about it. Like, they, they want to usher people from step to step. And just because they're untrue arguments doesn't mean they aren't arguments. And I actually think in terms of action items that understanding those arguments as hard as it is, is part of the thing we can do to inoculate ourselves. So let's talk about the role of the internet in all of this. You had a great piece in The New Yorker. It's called The Dark Side of Techno-Utopianism. Can you tell us what techno-utopian 
techno, will you tell us how to pronounce <laughs> techno-utopianism and tell us what it is, and also just what the internet ended up being and what we thought it would be. Yeah, there was this moment that lasted too long, like 30 years, where the people who were inventing the internet were very optimistic, and techno-utopianism is the phrase I use for just like, we're gonna put this out there and it's gonna fix everything, and there was no, I mean, lots of people invent things and want to put them out there and say they're going to fix everything because that means that all their incentives are aligned, right? My thing is great. There's no reason they're going to create the pushback on their own thing. But in this case, like, society didn't create any pushback either. There was this very long moment of every other industry that's ever existed, every other technology that's ever existed has had massive drawbacks. But we kind of gave this one a pass for a really long time and just assumed that it'll make the world more open and connected, it'll bring us all together. And there was never a reason to believe that it would only do that, but the fact that there were no, there was never, there were a few people along the way. There was this guy, Alan Kay, who's unfortunately literally a footnote in my book, but he deserves more than that. He was kind of this prophet of doom, sort of saying, Humans are not good at developing resistance to fats, sugars, TV. We're not good at taking a new thing that's designed to addict our reptilian brains and going, you know what, I'm good. I'm just only going to use this for salutary things and I'm just going to leave the rest behind. Like, that's not what we do as a species. So this was at the Superhighway Summit in 1994. This guy, Alan Kay, who was a big, big deal in Xerox Park and computer programming, he was like, guys, we should take a minute, think this through, and everyone else there, like Al Gore and stuff, were like, nah, let's just plow ahead and like, what's the worst that could happen? So you're basically saying it's all San Francisco's fault? Yes. <laughs> no, but, but there's a quote from this founder and CEO of Reddit, and he says, everyone's feeling, including mine at the time, was trust your users, let them post what they want to post. If it's bad, it'll get downvoted. So how did we get from a place of like, this idea, the ideal of self-moderation to sort of where we are now? Yeah. Well, the marketplace of ideas doesn't work. Exactly. I mean, the marketplace doesn't work either. So I don't know why we ever thought that the marketplace of ideas, like, that's the thing. We take these analogies. <laughs> like, the best ideas win yes. is so not true. Yeah, it doesn't happen that way. And it's never really been that way. But we, we get stuck in this dichotomy of, oh, well, you can't be a pessimist, so you have to be an optimist. So all political rhetoric has to end on this mm. note of we are these great people that are going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we are this exceptional shining city on a hill. And like, I think the optimism versus pessimism thing is just the wrong question. What's the right question? In the book, I call it contingency. I don't call it contingency. Richard Rorty, the great philosopher, calls it contingency. Meaning... Yeah, it's yours now. Yeah, I'll take it. He's, <laughs> he's dead. He's I mean, dead. I know, can have it. You're here being That's not true. Jewish. And he would dead. be a great Gentile. It's just like week, Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 Hours. Exactly. That concept he invented. Exactly. And researched. So, uh, he, the idea is that we make our future, right? To be an optimist or a pessimist in the way it's usually defined is to say, well, we know where it's going to end up and we just sort of have to wait till we get there. We obviously don't know where it's going to end up, and, but we don't live as if we don't know. We live as if we do know and, you know, you hear this is not who we are. We need to become a better version of the thing we were always destined to be, but like there really is no destiny. And even the idea of the Martin Luther King idea of the arc bending toward justice, like his idea was you have to march in order to get there. You don't just wait for it to happen. Right, but the idea that there is an ideal that we should strive for, you're not suggesting doing away with that. No, 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 I'm not. I, I think there is an ideal to strive for, but we rest on this notion that there's no strive. We kind of skip the striving part. Like there's an ideal of what we will become or this is who we are. And, and I think that blinds us to reckoning with the stains in our history. And that's sort of where, you know, we've talked about this. This is where my sort of political analysis is really focusing on the right, where you're, I, I really focus on a one-headed dragon as opposed to your three because of that, because I think there's something inherent in our national character, not that it's the only thing, but I think we have never dealt with the stains of our past in a real way. I think we've never had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I think we've never dealt with the ways that Nazi rhetoric was patterned on American eugenicist rhetoric in a lot of ways. You guys thought it was a downer before. It's going to get way worse. But <laughs> like that, I think that means that, of course, there are many ways that the future could end up. But I think it's a dangerous lie for us to tell ourselves to only focus on the part of Martin Luther King that said, 
uh, American ideals will dictate that one day we will get rid of segregation and not deal with the part of King that said we're a radically sick society. Right, but I mean part of this is, and I say this as, as someone of the left, progressivism does, there, there's a way in which it can lead, in, in that it's utopian, right? There's a way in which it can, you, can, it, you can march down towards a kind of Stalinist fervor of like, we're gonna end class division. You can also march down toward a fascist fervor, which is we're gonna have purity. We're gonna have like u unified gnomic purity without any dissenters, no Jews, no communists, just everyone getting along and looking alike. But, and you can also take the march down towards a kind of techno utopianism. And I do think that there's something, I mean, it's interesting because part of my worry about truth and reconciliation commission is like, the idea is, well, when we're done with that, then we're done. But actually, no, like mm -hmm. suffering is just, like we are a fallen people. That's what Judaism teaches us. Humans are fallen. At some point, you just have to say, we're gonna keep muddling through the best we can. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I've seen in Pittsburgh that's so extraordinary is like so much of the healing and so much of the reconciliation, so much of the loving for each other, like just doesn't happen online. It happens person to person. The internet, seeing, the internet is a very goyish creation. I think it is. <laughs> I think you just said what I'm trying to say. Yes, yes, and and let's. That is the hottest take I've ever heard. That is so hot. <laughs> Somebody's nothing, gonna, nothing Jewish about it. Somebody's gonna pay two hundred dollars for that take tomorrow. Listen, it's all a destruction of communal values that we worked very hard to try. You can't, you can't get a minion on the internet. I did once in a New Yorker piece a few weeks ago refer to someone as the Dark Lord of the Sith of the internet, and I'm sorry to say it was a Jew, Mark Zuckerberg. So, uh, <laughs> the thing is, though, I bet the. I bet the fan the fan community like devoured like don't mess with Star Wars. <laughs> well, fans, we had right? a very interesting fact-checking debate about whether we should say a Dark Lord of the Sith or the Dark Lord of the Sith. Interesting. And we had to call up many wikis at the closing meeting and stuff. But what I want to turn to is the same question that we put to Barry and her book ends with this really terrific and useful list of like here's things you could do. Like mm -hmm. start with one of these. Your book does not. Oh, it does. It's just so long you haven't gotten oh, there. Oh no, no, it's not. Yeah. You yeah. you sent me the PDF, mother, and I actually read it. <laughs> yeah, and it, it does not. It does not end with the checklist. Yeah. And, but what I'm curious is like, as a human journalist and dad felt about a year, year and a half ago, I had to get off. And so mm -hmm. I got off Twitter and Facebook. I was never on Snapgram or Instachat or the others, right? So I tell people, just get off. You'll, you'll be a better partner, person, dog owner, lover, like you name it, just get off. Mm. That was the first time I said that actually. But <laughs> do you think that there's a way that we can go? Because we're citizens, right? Like all of us in one way or another, if we live in America, have been affected by 4chan and Reddit. Well, right, so you sort of answered your own question, right? You can get off and you might be a better dog lover or whatever, uh, uh, <laughs> but you won't, um, but you, you won't- You went really dark there, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> Come uh, on, man. Come but on. I was just shortening it. I understand. But, but you won't, be, My dogs are very attractive. You won't be <laughs> immune. So like I, you know, because people do ask, people ask two versions of this. One is should I get off? And also people ask me, well, aren't you a hypocrite because you use this stuff? To which the answer is yes. I mean, I'm also a hypocrite because I use Amazon and I have critiques of Amazon. I'm a hypocrite because I drive in cars. I mean, we're all living in a very flawed society. The, but the thing is, I, you know, I can take steps. I drive a hybrid, actually. Applause, please. Thank you. But I don't. No, I'm just. This kidding. is San Francisco. That's required. Yeah. No, I know. That's like you have a car. That's seriously. One. I mean, uh, uh, but I. But it doesn't take you out of the societal effects. So, like, I do think that you will be more relaxed if you're. You'll experience less FOMO. I mean, these things are designed to hack into the brainstem okay, level but, but of our one, attention. One thing people say all the time that drives me crazy is when they say. Twitter's not real life. Yes. Do you agree that Twitter's not real life? Because I don't. Right. Well, what do they mean when they say that? What they mean when they say that is sort of along the lines of what Mark is saying, if you log off and you just don't look, it won't not affect happening. you or affect you. But the truth is, if everyone else is looking, yeah. you know, I, do, I just know this because there's this sort of two-dimensional avatar of me that exists on the internet that a lot of people feel they have a relationship with or hate or love or whatever. And then there's the real me. And that's increasingly true of so many of us. Yeah. Which is the reason I think Twitter is real life. And I'm just wondering where you feel No, I think that. you're right. I mean, I, I think it's, it's useful to remind yourself that Twitter is not real life in the same way that it's useful to remind yourself that like, if you're watching a horror movie, the person's not gonna actually crash through the screen and hurt you. Like in the sense that you don't have to be as angry about the things in that moment as you are, but I think the larger point is, not only is it real life because everyone else is on there, it's also real life because it decides who gets elected president, it decides whether we're gonna solve climate change, it decides, like, the, the reason I started studying this stuff is not because I wanted to go into some fringe weird thing and I'm masochistic. The reason I started getting into it is because 
we ignore it at our peril, both the good and the bad. Like we, if we decide that we're just going to pay attention to Time and Newsweek or the print copy of the New Yorker, I mean, no shade to Time and Newsweek, but like there, this stuff interpenetrates our lives so deeply that this is, you saw this with the rise of Trump, right? You kept hearing people, this is why I, I won so many bets about Trump, because you kept hearing people go, oh, well, just Twitter. Twitter's not real life. Yeah. yeah. Or like, he's the, that goof who's on The Apprentice. And it's like, yeah, but there, again, there is no rule that says you can't take your opinions from The Apprentice and use them in the voting. That's why we're paying you to be on Twitter, right? Like, that's why I can get off and you're going to inspect well, your life. Well, I'm not even, I don't even spend that much time right. on I Twitter. Understand. I mean, I like use it anthropologically. My, my argument is always that like no given person is responsible for being, for interacting with every facet of real life. And there are some people who are led to believe that it's their obligation to pay attention to this platform or that platform or The Apprentice, right? Like, right. it's okay not to watch Mad Men. I loved Mad Men, but I don't have that water cooler sense of like, how could you not have seen Mad Men? Like, presumably they were doing other interesting things with their, that, their Wait, time. Wait, let's, speaking of hot takes, let's get everyone's like 2020 things out on the table. People who are, you're studying this all the time. Like, where, where, what are your thoughts? You mean who's you gonna win? It? Yeah, like oh. Trump's gonna win again. Yeah. I would say 100%. You heard it here first. Who who agrees Trump is going to win again on the stage? That's where I would put my money right now, yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, incumbency is a huge advantage. I mean, basically, it sort of depends if the economy tanks in October or December, right? If so, if the economy tanks in October, then maybe he won't win. But (laughs) but, on all of us. I mean, I the thing. I mean, at a very basic level, like because studying the internet trains you to look for what drives engagement, right? Because the internet is made up of emotional engagement. The whole thing about virality is people try to make rules about, oh, viral things are funny with a little bit of nostalgia plus cats on a skateboard. Like that's not, virality is just about what makes you feel the most what scientists call activating emotion. So activating emotion can be awe, it can be lust, it can be envy. It's something that makes you- Rage. Yes, rage is the number one right now. And so Trump is, an activating emotion machine. People love him, people hate him, nobody has no opinion about him. So in a sense, it will be shocking that we were shocked. When people look back in history and go, this is the attention economy, he is the attention machine, why was anybody surprised? Like, so until I see someone who can break through that wall, and it's not just about cable news, it's, not, it's about just literally the biggest systems of informational sharing and in, our entire informational ecosystem is based around people being motivated to share, comment. It could be hate comments. It doesn't matter. Just engage. So by that logic, if you think AOC were running against Trump, do you think she could win? Yeah. 2028, she will be president for sure. Wow. In 2020, Alexandra Alexander Ocasio-Cortez is going to be president in 2028. By the test of the you attention economy, right. like she captivates so people. I will She's just say, yeah, I will just exercise founding host of the podcast prerogative and say, I think these, I think they're wrong. I don't want to end on that note. Though. No, but we were not going to. Okay. Of course, we're going to have lots of mazel tovs and then we're going to wrap up. I want to say that afterwards, Barry's going to be signing copies of her book so you can take all of your thoughts to her. We are <laughs> going to be signing copies of the newest Jewish encyclopedia, which is our guide to everything Jewish from Abraham to Zabar's. Uh, the last it's incredible. I've bought five for everyone in my family. The last entry in the book is actually not Zabar's. It's Zyklon B, but we didn't want to put that on the cover. It's not as good for marketing. <laughs> just really bad marketing. Um, just keep, we're just keeping it real. That is not our fault. Not our fault. Uh, <laughs> just the alphabet then. So <laughs> the Gentiles invented the alphabet. I mean, it's like this alphabet anyway. So now what we want to do is, do we want to do our model tough first? Yes, let's go down the line first? and then we'll bring you guys up. Did we explain what a model tough is? We're going to model a model tough. Yeah, great, what's great. your model tough? I'm going to model model tough by saying that uh, this, is, this is the month of Elul, the Hebrew month of Elul leading up to Rosh Hashanah. It's a time of reflection. My mazel tov is to Nelly Bowles, who's here somewhere, uh, who I first met, uh, who I first met by being a total dick and saying very uh, ungracious things about her on Twitter, not knowing anything about her, just being one of those horrible people that Andrew <laughs> describes in his book. Uh, and then, of course, I met Nelly, and she's the greatest. And I think that should be a lesson to all of us, too, to the extent that we can, A, get off Twitter, and, and to the extent that we can, try, try to be nice to each other. I agree, she's the greatest. Ooh, okay, speaking of being nice to each other, I have a mazel tov to my husband, Ben Cohen, who is at home taking care of our cat and who will be doing so for the duration of our book tour, and that is like a really heroic act and a dangerous one, too. Taking care of your cat is harder than taking care of my five children. That's correct. And those dogs. Not to take anything away from Sid, but from the stories you tell about your cat, I think that's a fair statement. Much more, vi- much more violent. 
My mazel tov is to my son David, who turned one September 3rd. Um, this is because, not for turning one. We're glad he made it to one, but that's not like, <laughs> not big props to him for that. We did most of the work keeping him alive. But we've been waiting for him to crawl properly, like he just does the army crawl on his belly. And he can't crawl yet, but he did learn to spin because his right arm works faster than his left. So now he just goes around in circles in one place. And it's just, it's just wicked cute, as we say in Massachusetts. So mazel tov. He'll, he'll never, someday he'll be Googling dad and he'll find this mazel tov. And David in the year 2030, uh, President Ocasio-Cortez <laughs> wants you to know that you were, you were a great spinner. Thank you guys for doing this. My mazel tov is to Ayman Odeh. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. The head of the Arab list. Now, it's an unusual one for me, but he is an Arab-Israeli politician in Israel. There was a record turnout of Arab-Israeli voters in this last election, and he had an op-ed in the New York Times that I really recommend to all of you, and the thing that was amazing about it to me is he quotes a line, um, famous line from the Hebrew Bible, the idea that the stone that has been cast aside has become the cornerstone. And to see an Arab-Israeli politician quoting the Hebrew Bible in the pages of the Times gave me a little bit of political hope for what's going on over there. Yeah. I feel like you guys could have clapped for Mark's child. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. He apparently the entire state of Israel. Andrew, Mordechai, Shmuel, that's Rant. me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was deciding whether to do joint list or my kid, so I got to do my kid, I guess. Um, he can uh, he spin really fast. He's he's beyond he's, spinning. He walks. Yeah, he yeah. does all kinds of things. He talks. His his um <laughs> his his favorite new book is called Pup and Bear, which I would recommend to the toddler set. It's very good. It's about interspecies friendship, and his favorite thing is acting out all the different polar bears that's set in the Arctic and the seals and the walruses. So my mazel tov is to him figuring out all the different animal sounds and to, um, what's his, his favorite? Oh, he, there's a lot of nuzzling in the book. So we do a lot of nuzzling Aww. after the book. So yeah, Aww. see, that's Aww. just a cute one. What's his name? Uh, Gideon. Gideon, my, that's my nephew's name. My brother's son is Gideon. It's Gideon's coming back, baby. Oh yeah. yeah. All right, what do we got from our audience? Please say who you are and, and where you're from. My name is Max Fieber. I'm from Michigan originally. I'm studying here for the semester. Um, and I'd like to give Mazel Tov to my friend Vicky. She turns 21 tomorrow. She's up there. Yay! Mazel tov. My name is Steven. I live in Oakland, and my Mazel Tov is to my, my older brother, who, uh, though he's 58 years old, has recently learned to walk again uh, following a stroke. So. Mazel Tov. Amazing. Oh, Hi everybody, my name's Monique Molino, and this is a mazel tov on behalf of my client, Lisa Wiener. Uh, she said she couldn't be here tonight, but she wanted to say mazel tov to Sue Wiener and Steve Wiener, who both just turned 75, and how much she loves and cherishes them. Oh, mazel tov. Uh, my name is Jess, I'm from San Francisco, and my mazel tov is to my sister, who is a diehard unorthodox listener, Ellie Leader. So not only did she get a new house this year and has done like a lot of experiential Jewish education seminars, but she also found her ideal fancy lady skincare routine, and I'm really <laughs> proud of her. So congrats, Ellie. I mean, that is big. That is like a, a, a true milestone. I respect that enormously. Hello, my name is Co-Creation, and I live here in San Francisco. Um, my mazel tov is to my friend Zosha Sugarman, who um, has really become an adult in the last couple of years, like taking, harnessing her own life. Uh, she introduced me to the Unorthodox podcast, and most recently encouraged me to apply at the local congregation Emmanuel, and I will be starting there soon. Mazel tov to you. Hello, good evening. Um, my name is Sean. I am originally from North Carolina, but now reside in Oakland. And I would like to give a mazel tov to my beautiful fiance, Amy, who is celebrating her 32nd today. And a little bit of background. This, um, this, this gives us a mazel tov kind of full circle because she submitted a mazel tov for me after Passover on Orthodox that got read on air. So now we're eating. Yay! That's amazing. <laughs> I also, I just, 
I just want to say that I appreciate your mazel tov, especially I turned 32 yesterday and not a single person I host a podcast with wished, with, wished me a mazel tov. So I just like, I think you're really nice and you must be a great fiance. <laughs> Happy birthday, Stephanie. Thank you. Um, my name's Jess Walla. I used to have a much more Jewish last name, but Walla now. And my mazel tov is to my mom and dad who celebrated their 30-year anniversary emigrating from a very hostile, anti-Semitic Soviet Union, and they built a beautiful life in Boston. Mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call them into our voicemail line at 914-570-4869. Subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. We often come to you live, like tonight, to book us or advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross spelled the Jewish way, with a K, not a C, at jcross at tabletmag.com. Of course, you need to wear and carry unorthodox, too. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt and find the latest in unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to be a billboard for our podcast. Follow us on Instagram at Unorthodox Podcast and on Twitter at Unorthodox underscore pod. Also follow Barry Weiss and Andrew Morantz, who's not on Twitter as much as Barry Weiss is. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producer is Sarah Fredman Ader. Don't call her Sarah. She's Sarah. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbis Noah Kushner of The Kitchen, Rabbi Carla Fenvis of Temple Emmanuel, and Magid Joe Singer and Shliach Sibor Julie Batz of Chokmat Halev. We usually come to you from Argo Studios, but tonight we are ensconced in the warm, bosomy CBD cashmere love of the San Francisco JCC. Shalom, friends. Lead the way. If everyone could turn off their mics and now. And muzzle up to you. <laughs>